I can't, I don't have time to go into the story of how it was that uh, Leopold became the proxy for the United States. Um, but uh, if I can read this caption here, Henry Shelton Sanford, the wealthy connected arist Connecticut aristocrat who successfully lobbied the United States into recognizing Leopold's claim in the Congo. And uh, here is um, part of the uh, documentation of how uh, the government of the United States uh, essentially treated Leopold as a kind of proxy. They felt that they had the right to colonize the Congo Basin, but they recognized Leopold as a um, trustee who would represent the civilized nations who had a responsibility to elevate the savage peoples, the primitive peoples. Uh, so uh, there was a, a series of conferences which took place in Europe. Uh, Leopold attended these conferences. He created different um, entities and became chairman of these different committees and gradually developed this, this theory that uh, the civilized nations had to go into Africa, a part of the world where slavery had formerly been at play, and take responsibility for um, helping the indigenous peoples to, to learn about the, the larger world, to um, become uh, more educated. Uh, that, was, that was the theory, but the practice was quite uh, different. Uh, here is... Um, uh, different images of of, of of Congo, the early days of Congo. Here is uh, one of the stations where um, ivory has been taken from, from an ivory gathering post in Congo circa 1890. Elephant tusks bought from Africans for a pittance or confiscated at gunpoint fetched high prices in Europe as raw material for everything from uh, false teeth to piano keys. And we'll uh, look at uh, George Washington Williams. He was the first um, the first individual to identify the uh, what he called crimes against humanity that were taking place in the Congo, and uh, tried to um, blow the whistle to draw attention to that. Here's uh, Joseph Conrad, uh, one prototype for Conrad's Mr. Kurtz. Uh, Leon Rom, the swashbuckling officer, was known for displaying a row of severed African heads around his garden. He also wrote a book on African customs, painted portraits and, and landscapes, and collected butterflies. Uh, Marlon Brando, of course, played the Kurtz figure in Apocalypse Now. Um, so Kurtz is the is the uh, individual who represents, in a certain sense. Uh, uh, Joseph Conrad's book is a uh, commentary on the dark side of imperialism and on the dark side of human nature when human nature is put in a position where there's no, um, no limitations on their conduct, nothing to hold back the heart of darkness from being, being expressed. So uh, um, uh, heart of darkness is, is fiction, but in fact it is, reflecting on um, very real things that happened. A.D. Morrell uh, uh, took up the campaign and led the campaign to draw attention to 
the travesties taking place in Congo, and much of the book describes uh, that uh, that campaign. Now, these images are, uh, here's a man without his hand. A very uh, regular thing that was done was uh, if you in, in any way offended a colonial official, they cut off your hands. And there's many images. Here's, a, here's another uh, individual with his hands cut off. Uh, here's an individual being uh, whipped into line. So there were quotas. How would you get the rubber out? How would you get uh, people motivated to the degree where they go into the jungle and, and tap these wild rubber trees? Uh, so uh, there were different uh, coercive tactics used. Here is uh, more... Uh, display of hands being cut off. Uh, women hostages held under guard in order to force their husbands to go into rainforests and gather wild rubber. And then here is uh, part of the um, movement to end, end this, to draw attention to this. Uh, to these crimes against humanity, you can see uh, the, the type of uh, constituency that was being mobilized was jumping into this issue. Uh, here is a cartoon of Leopold standing on top of heads. Uh, the cartoon appeared in Germany accompanied by some doggerel about Leopold Zesper cutting off both black heads and bond coupons. And uh, here is... Uh, Congo reformers often pointed to the Berlin Agreement of 1885, one of many broken promises regarding the treatment of Africans. So this uh, George Washington Williams, who went as a kind of missionary uh, going to bring Christianity to this part of the world. But when he was, when he traveled around, he could see uh, the great travesties taking place. Uh, whether Williams was calling for self-government or for international trusteeship, it would be many years before anyone from Europe or the United States would do the same. In a letter Williams wrote to the American Secretary of State, he used a phrase that seemed plucked from the Nuremberg trials of more than a half a century later, Leopold's Congo State, Williams wrote, was guilty of crimes against humanity. He was from the United States. Yeah. So uh, this term, of course, is going to appear in the effort to reckon with what uh, the Nazis did um, in the 1930s and early 1940s. Uh, but here it, here it emerges in the late 1890s uh, with respect to what's going on in the, in the Congo. Uh, this is a little gem I've found years ago in the library in, at the University of Lethbridge here. Alpheus Henry Snow uh, writes about this situation. Uh, 
in a book entitled uh, The Question of Aborigines in the Law and Practice of Nations. And uh, here is where this book emerges from. Uh, the following is submitted to the Department of State pursuant to a request made by a uh, letter dated April 29, 1918, that the author should undertake the task of collecting, arranging, and so far as, may, as he may deem necessary, editing the authorities and documents relating to the subject of aborigines in the law and practice of nations. The author has discovered uh, no treaties on the question, nor even a chapters in any book on international law or the law of colonies to serve as a model or guide. He has therefore been compelled to develop the subject and arrange its documents according to his own judgment. So as I interpret this text, uh, Alpheus uh, Snow is authorized by the State Part Department, given a kind of contract to research this issue. And as I see it, uh, quite probably this is with a view that the, the, uh, the First World War is coming to a close there's going to be some kind of a settlement. There was a settlement, as it turned out, in 1919 at Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles. So in preparation for this international um, negotiations, which were going to readjust the world order, uh, Snow goes off and does uh, research. And uh, so... It's a really, really fascinating um, text. It's written with a complete uh, confidence that this view of humanity as, uh, as, as divided between civilized people, primitive people, uh, civilized people and primitive people, uh, civilized people and savages, that the civilized people have a certain kind of law for themselves and a certain kind of responsibility uh, and set of challenges with respect to the uncivilized people, that this is all legitimate. And uh, so it was interesting for me, for instance, to be able to read about uh, the Royal Proclamation in Canada, uh, these early treaties in North America, and then go right into Africa and see the same, see the extension of the same, uh, these same policies. You know, I, I had suspected that there were these connections but this text uh, enabled me to uh, prove uh, definitively that they exist. And uh, so in this text, you'll see the founding of the independent state of Congo uh, and its effect on the law and nation regarding Aborigines. Uh, the institution of the Berlin African Conference of a Middle African Zone of International Jurisdiction. So that was the concept that that the Congo, in fact, was a, a zone of international jurisdiction and that Leopold would be a kind of trustee to oversee the international community's uh, civilizing mission. And, uh, and that's how he structured uh, his uh, political move into, into, this, into this realm. And of course, we see in uh, Adam Hochschild's um, text how he how he uh, used that. Uh. So that's the background that uh, this account of Lumumba. Uh, Lumumba, of course, is is looking at this history, is conscious of this history. It's his country. It's his people's history. 
1960, hearing the representative of Belgium describe Leopold as a genius, as a very benevolent figure, you can imagine how, um, how upsetting that would be. And he expressed that. Um, now, in, uh, in, in this period, um, By 1960, the sum of total university graduates in all of Congo was 30. Indeed, the largest complement of trained manpower were priests. Of these, there were more than 600. So the concession companies, Leopold and the Roman Catholic Church, had basically governed uh, the Belgian Congo. Um, and the Belgian Congo, uh, they had uh, quite purposely not encouraged higher education. Uh, they would not encourage the development of an indigenous elite like existed, for instance, in Gold Coast in, uh, in some of the uh, uh, British colonies. Uh, it's quite dramatic when you, you read uh, these stats here. Indeed, the largest complement of trained manpower were, uh, were priests of those, there were more than 600. At the end of 1959-60 academic year, only 136 children completed secondary education. There were no Congolese doctors, no secondary school teachers, no army officers. The first contingents of Congolese officer cadets to be sent for training in Belgium was not due to return until 1963. So this exercise of decolonization where the European power was pulling out its presence. There, had, there was very little in place to, to fill the vacuum. Um, and this was, this was the context. Um, Lumumba was only 35 years old. Uh, and then uh, as chief of staff, Lumumba chose his trusted personal aide, Joseph Mobutu, who spent seven years in the force publique working mainly as a clerk. So Mobutu is going to be the uh, uh, figure who governs Congo as a, as a dictator, as a military figure, until um, the early 1990s. And it's tempting to see Mobutu as a kind of uh, reflection or an extension of, of uh, Leopold II, that Leopold II sort of created the, the prototype of how the how Congo was to be governed, and then an indigenous African, Mobutu, who called himself Seki Seso, the fearless warrior, uh, he um, conducted himself much like Leopold had. Um, there's a a, a, um, a secession movement within Congo. Uh, in Katanga, in the southern province, uh, and it was led by uh, Moisi Tshombe. Moisi Tshombe, in fact, his forces uh, were the were the individuals who killed um, who killed uh, Lumumba, as we'll see. So uh, basically. Lumumba takes over and there's chaos. There's secession movements. Uh, the Belgian government is trying to continue its control of Congo 
through through the army and continue its business involvement. Um, uh, there's, you know, not a, an organized civil service that uh, that Lumumba has in place. Um, so the United Nations come in, and uh, Lumumba tries to give orders to the United Nations. He has difficulties. The following day, Lumumba issued an ultimatum threatening that if the UN did not remove all Belgian troops from the Congo by midnight on July 19th, he would invite the Soviet Union to intervene. And that, of course, is uh, the signal that leads to his demise. He is uh, playing right into uh, the Cold War tensions, the central Cold War tensions. So the fear that the Soviet Union will get some kind of hold in the heart of Africa becomes the overwhelming uh, preoccupation of, of uh, certainly the CIA, of the U.S. government. Um, at a time when the Cold War rivalry was at, it, at one of its peak, Lumumba's threats infuriated the United States and pitched the Congo into the middle of a Cold War confrontation. U.S. officials feared the possibility of another Cuba a communist takeover, similar to Fidel Castro's Cuban Revolution in 1959. That would provide the Soviet Union with a base in the heart of Africa. At a meeting of the U.S. National Security Council in Washington on, 20, on 22 July, presided over by President Eisenhower, the Central Intelligence Agency chief, Alan Dulles, described Lumumba as a Castro or worse, adding, it's safe to go on the assumption that Lumumba has been bought by the communists. Of course, Alan Dulles worked closely with Prescott, Bush, and others before uh, the U.S. entry into World War II, um, funneling um, funds and helping uh, the Nazi regime in, in Germany. And uh, uh, Alan Dulles, of course, his, his brother uh, was Secretary of State um, and uh, uh, it's it's a very fascinating thing to to discover um, and and uh, research Alan Dulles's role. Let's pick it up on 26 August. The head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, sent a, a telegram to Lawrence Devlin, the CIA station chief in Leopoldville, saying in in high quarters here, it is a clear cut conclusion that if Lumumba continues to hold high office, the inevitable result will be at best chaos and at worst the, uh, pave the way to communist takeover of the Congo with disastrous consequences for the prestige of the UN and for the interests of the free world generally. Consequently, we conclude that his removal must be urgent and the prime objective. So there it is. There's no doubt that... Uh, the orders come from the CIA. Uh, much of this research uh, that uh, this author is reporting on comes from this text by Ludo uh, DeWitt, uh, The Assassination of Lumumba. Uh, so here's a, here is a, the first uh, conception of how the CIA will handle it. The CIA, meanwhile, fearing that Lumumba might return to power, continued with its assassination schemes. At a meeting of the National Security Council on 21st September, shared by President Eisenhower, CIA Chief Alan Dulles stressed that Lumumba remained a grave danger 
as long as he was not disposed of. Of course, Lumumba was much beloved by many millions of Congolese. He, he could give articulation to views that many Congolese uh, deeply held. And uh, uh, let's, uh, let's have a look at him. Here he is uh, on the Independence Day. Lumumba arrives at Palais de la Nation in Leopoldville, and we know where that name comes from, for the Independence Ceremony, 30 June 1960. And here he is with the Belgian representative uh, signing uh, the, the relevant documents. Here he is with uh, Kwame Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah in a white suit, first president of the Guyana Republic, bids farewell to the outgoing Governor General of Ghana, Lord Listowel. Uh, Lumumba being interviewed with Maurice Mapolo, the new Commander-in-Chief of the Congolese Army. Here he is with, the, with uh, Doug Hammerschgolt, Secretary uh, General of the United Nations. And this is uh, Mobutu. Uh, he, of course, sponsored the uh, famous uh, fight in 1974, the Rumble in the Jungle, with uh, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, uh, George Foreman and Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. So uh, this return to Africa, you know, it, it, by Cassius Clay, who was a, an African patriot, um, uh, We'll, we'll, as we'll see, this story is uh, deeply Im involved with uh, with the African American population in the United States. Here's here's the house where he was uh, uh, tortured. So, uh, meanwhile, the CIA, fearing Lumumba might come back to power, uh, pick it up here. CIA Chief Allen Dulles stressed that Lumumba remained a grave danger as long as he was not disposed of. A senior CIA scientist, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, put together an assassination kit that included a poison designed to, quote, produce a disease indigenous to that area of Africa that could be fatal. Gottlieb sent the kit by diplomatic pouch to Leopoldville, then traveled there himself on 27 September to instruct Larry Devlin on how to use it. Gottlieb explained to Devlin that the poison had to be put in Lumumba's food or on his toothbrush, but the poison reached its expiry date before Devlin uh, had worked out a scheme to infiltrate Lumumba's residence. So it's uh, kind of descriptive of the kind of tactics that are used um, or attempted. Uh, many, many such attempts were uh, made with Fidel Castro, it's, it's really incredible, it's really extraordinary that Fidel Castro has uh, survived. Um, obviously, I'm looking at Lumumba as a kind of case study, and we could talk about many um, situations where similar tactics were deployed during the Cold War to remove individuals that were seen to be not on side with uh, the main business interests and the, the, the capitalist superpowers interests. Uh, but I, I'll go into detail with this one case, uh, which is uh, particularly, I think, uh, 
revealing of, of the kind of uh, kind of extremism that prevailed in, in at the heart of the Cold War, and what uh, and what in a way um, um, sabotaged the promise of decolonization, the promise that with the coming to an end of these European empires, that uh, indigenous people could acquire self-government could express their human rights, could transcend the oppression that they'd been subjected to during the course of imperialism and could uh, uh, join the human family on the basis of some respect for their human rights and some uh, incorporation into a, a global system uh, where you know, there were 50 countries represented at the founding of the United Nations there are now about 200 countries in the world. And so three-quarters of the countries of the world have come through this process of, of, of decolonization. Um, but, of course, um, Africa is a classic example of the reality that most of the countries that emerge from the imperial period take on, they have the same borders, the same structures as they had uh, under imperial rule. So the borders in Africa, for instance, do not in any way conform to the ethnic configurations in Africa. Uh, they don't conform often to even uh, very good uh, geographic boundaries. Uh, so the scramble among the European powers for um, territory in Africa took place without any reference whatsoever to the will of Africans or the way Africans themselves understood their alignments with other peoples. Um, um, you know, and, and Africa is extremely complex ethnically. There's many, many hundreds of, of languages in uh, Africa. The only part of the world that had a more complex language uh, structure is uh, the Western Hemisphere. Western Hemisphere, there were 2,200 languages in 1492. There's about 600 languages spoken now. There were 12,000 languages spoken in the world. In 1492, there's about 6,000 languages spoken now. But 90% of those languages are extremely endangered. Uh, might there be 100 excellent Blackfoot speakers in this territory? Uh, it's not inconceivable that the Blackfoot language could be made to to live into future generations, but it won't unless serious measures are taken, institutional things are done. Um, um, so let let's just uh, take take uh, Lumumba to uh, to the conclusion to his uh, to the end of his life uh, in the. Early morning of 17 January 1961, Lumumba and two colleagues were collected by uh, Ndaka from the army camp at Thistleville. They, they were taken to an airfield at Monda, accompanied by three Baluba soldiers from Kasai, especially chosen for their hatred of Lumumba. On the six-hour flight to Elizabethville, the prisoners were savagely beaten by their guards. Their clothes were torn and bloodstained. They were met at the airport by a large contingent of Belgian officers and Katangese soldiers hit with rifle butts, thrown into the back of a truck and taken to an empty house two miles from the airport. Uh, 
guarded by troops and police under the command of a Belgian officer. Held in the bathroom, they were repeatedly beaten and tortured. Sashambe and other Katangese ministers came by to taunt them, joining in the savagery. When Tshambe returned to his official residence, he was, according to his butler, covered in blood. During a drunken session at Tshambe's residence later that night, the Katangese Katangis decided that Lumumba and his companion should be executed at once. I notice here it says uh, Lumumba was president was prime minister for 67 days. Uh, during the night, the Belgians increasingly worried about the implications of their involvement in Lumumba's murder. They began to concoct a cover story about how Lumumba and his companions had been killed by patriotic villagers after escaping from detention. They also decided to get rid of the bodies. The following night, two Belgians and their African assistants dug up the corpses, transported them to Kasanga, 120 miles northeast of Elizabethville, hacked them into pieces and threw the pieces into a barrel of sulfuric acid. Then they ground up the skulls and scattered the bones and teeth during the return journeys so that no trace of Lumumba and his companions would ever be found. So that's who Patrick uh, Lumumba is. Um, I spoke of Nkwami Nkrumah. Nkwami Nkrumah uh, was the first uh, Prime Minister of Ghana, and uh, here is Nkwame Nkrumah at the Independence Day in uh, Gold Coast, or as it becomes known after 1957, it takes on an African name, Ghana. Uh, and... Uh, the Queen Elizabeth was uh, quite fascinated with Nkwame Nkrumah, and he was quite fascinated uh, with her, and they, they spent a lot of time together. Um, and, of course, Nasser, I've shown this picture, Nasser um, saw him as a, an important figure, and uh, Nasser actually arranged his marriage. So he, uh, he married, a, sight unseen, a, a, an Egyptian uh, woman, and uh, they had three children. They never got together on language. They never had a common language. Uh, but it's uh, uh, indicative of the role that uh, Nasser was uh, trying to play. Nkrumah was a kind of um, intellectual figure uh, seeking the unity of, of, of Africans, uh, seeking pan-African unity, and uh, that, of course, wasn't allowed uh, to um, to develop. Uh, certainly, the French Empire made sure that uh, the decolonized units were small, and uh, therefore would uh, not express the power that they might have in some kind of larger Pan-African federation. So, uh, Nkrumah um, was kind of an intellectual. Uh, well, he was an intellectual, um, and this text is um, uh, quite a, an important text, uh, a 
a, a landmark of a text. It came out in 1965, and uh, neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism. So, Nkrumah is looking at this text at, at um, essentially how, uh, although African countries and Asian countries acquired their own uh, governments, they continued to be uh, subject to economic regimes that kept them um, in harness, in a sense, that precluded and limited their powers of true uh, self-government. And uh, so you can get a sense of uh, the topics from, uh, from uh, these chapter headings. Uh, so here is uh, his study, for instance, of uh, the economic pressures on uh, on the Congo Republic, and uh, so basically, as you see this text, he 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 looks at the 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 different banking structures, the different corporate structures, and traces uh, the continuity before decolonization and after decolonization. Um, the continuity that runs through these business enterprises. Uh, here you can see uh, he goes through the banking structures in the different countries. And uh, so this is his idea of neo-colonialism or neo-imperialism. He quotes uh, an author in here, uh, The Invisible Government, uh, David Wise and Thomas B. Ross, Random House. And when I re read this definition, it strikes me very similar to um, how we might characterize the thing that Dwight Eisenhower in 1961 called the military-industrial complex as he left the presidency of the United States, his second term as president of the United States, about to hand over power to John F. Kennedy, a Democrat. Of course, Eisenhower was a Republican, and he was a top soldier in the United States. He uh, led what became D-Day in World War II, um, and he warned uh, the American people when he was leaving power that a, an elite group of technocrats and business figures and military figures and research scientists uh, and university officials were um, getting a, a, an inordinate amount of power, uh, and he warned that the military-industrial complex, he invented that phrase in, the, in that speech, was uh, uh, had to be somehow controlled, and if it wasn't controlled, it would, it would uh, violate the potential for democracy in the United States. I mean, I would say that whatever the military-industrial complex was in those days has become much more powerful, and the threat that it represented in those days has grown. Anyway, that came to mind uh, as I, I read uh, this uh, text uh, from Nkwami Nkrumah. Uh, so these are Nkrumah's words. Lurking behind such questions are the extended tentacles of the Wall Street octopus, and its suction cups and mus muscular strength are provided by a ph phenomena dubbed the invisible government, 
arising from Wall Street's connection with the Pentagon and various intelligence services. I quote, the invisible government is a loose amorphous grouping of individuals and agencies drawn from many parts of the visible government. It's not limited to the Central Intelligence Agency, although the CIA is at its heart. And we now know that Nkrumah was also removed by the CIA, uh, CIA-controlled plot. So, you know, as he was writing this, this was uh, not just abstract theory. It was uh, coming in upon him. Nor is it confined to the nine other agencies which comprise what is known as the intelligence community, the National Security Council, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, Army Intelligence, Naval Intelligence and Research, the Atomic Energy Commission, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The invisible government includes also many other units and agencies, as well as individuals that appear outwardly to be a normal part of the conventional government. It even encompasses business firms and institutions that are seemingly private. To an extent that is only beginning to be perceived, this shadow government is shaping the lives of 190 million Americans. An informed citizen might come to suspect that the foreign policy of the United States often works publicly in one direction and secretly through the invisible government in just the opposite direction. The invisible government is a relatively new institution. It came into being as a result of two related factors, the rise of the United States after World War II to a position of preeminent world power and the challenge to that power by, the, by Soviet communism. By 1964, the intelligence network had grown into a massive hidden apparatus, secretly employing about 200,000 persons and spending billions of dollars a year so that gives you some sense of uh, of um, the type of uh, the type of analysis he's presenting, or it's definitely a, a kind of conspiratorial view of of things. But it's a uh, it's a conspiracy that uh, you know there's enormous evidence that he's that it it's quite uh, um, a reflection of how decisions were were actually made. Uh, let's take a break and come back in about 10 minutes.